Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this beautiful Sunday evening? Well, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. It hasn't cranked up super hot yet. Um, I'm doing very well, David. I'm, I'm still recovering from finishing the textbook and wondering what the editorial stage of that is, and uh, just trying to get my summer plans together, you know? Now, when you finish a book like that, is this a creative hangover? Is is this a case where you've had this project looming so large over your life that now that it's done, you don't know what to do with yourself? Well, a little bit. It's kind of like striking the set on a dramatic performance when you do have the next show lined up, but, but you kind of want to give yourself a little bit of ceremonial time. I, I, t- I have not been good at that in my life. I've often, uh, and not just in creative projects, every, you know, you just kind of move on. You don't milestone enough and, and celebrate a bit. And it's a little bit tricky to work out what the right celebration is in, in, in today's mode. It's not quite back to normal. So there is that. Um, and then kind of regrouping and also just kind of cleaning up the files, both on the computer and on the floor. You know, it, it was a huge project. I, I still want to explore some avenues, possibly in a kind of popular philosophy book with a different sort of audience. Um, but just kind of keeping track of the files, moving that stuff aside and being able to really uh, return to my big Pacific Island mythology novel. Um, and I've got a lot of, uh, you know, I want to play my music synthesizer. I want to do some vocal recording of uh, spoken word stuff. Uh, there's quite a number of projects, but I think some of it was just needing to lie down on the couch for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's been really big. That's in the space weather, too. We're in the middle of a Mercury retrograde, a Saturn retrograde, and there was an eclipse recently. So, Apparently, this is my astrologer friends who are much more well-versed in this than I am. I sort of take a backseat with that because I don't understand it, but I trust the people who do understand it. They say that it's time to do exactly that, which is lay on the couch, relax, don't start any new projects, finish up stuff that you have uh, still in the hopper, and just take it easy, man. So it's good to hear that that's what you're doing. Yeah, it's kind of cleaning up the studio or the laboratory, you know, uh, or you know, or the kitchen. There comes a time you have to just do some stowing away of stuff so you you can get on to the next thing, you know. Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. It's funny that you mentioned the weather. So it got really hot here up in the nineties, and my air conditioner went out. So mm. I called the air conditioning company. The guy came out the next day. So that whole night, you know, everybody's in their underwear. Gus is in his diaper. And, you know, we're just sort of suffering through it. And he comes out and he goes to the thermostat and hits a few buttons. And the worst possible thing that you could imagine happening happens, which is the air conditioner turns on. And when the air conditioner turns on after it has not been on for a day, you really start to believe that there might be some kind of spirit having fun with you, some sort of trickster spirit. But he left, and the air conditioner was on for a day, and then the next day it went out again. 
And I called the company and I said, what is going on here? You know, he came in, he, he turned it back on. He, cl- he went out to the unit in the backyard and cleaned it. And I don't know what's going on. You know, I'm trying to turn it back on and it's not working. And basically I had to let it alone for a bit. And then when I went back to it, it turned back on. So it might be a blower motor issue, but there's nothing worse, man. There's nothing worse than a working guy covered in sweat, wearing a sun hat, having busted his ass all day, walking into your like house and just turning it on. And the guy was really nice, really cool guy. But behind his eyes, you could tell that he was just like, is this guy stupid? Is he, does, he, does he just not know how to work his thermostat? So anyway, I mean, it's all's well that ends well. We have air conditioning right now, and I'll just maintain my grateful attitude towards that. But before we get started today, first of all, I want to thank all of our patrons for subscribing to the podcast that is uh, super awesome. We are very appreciative of that. We have two new patrons this week, uh, Craig Buckley and Ninja Cat. So thanks to you two. We really appreciate it. And I got a bit of listener email that includes a poem by Rainier M- Maria Rilke that I think was very good. It's a very good question and could be an interesting topic of discussion. So if that's cool with you, uh, I think I'll start by reading this email. Yeah, lay it on us. Okay, so this is from Jake. It goes, Hey there, David and Chris. I'm beyond grateful to your, that your podcast exists. Being able to listen in on conversations like the ones you two have brings so much meaning to my life, and I'm eager to watch as the podcast continues to grow and evolve. I'm interested in hearing what you both think of this poem by Rilke. It speaks of a turning point that must be made from passive observation in life to active engagement. Of the discriminatory powers of the gaze and the unifying power of the heart. It makes me think of the two trees in the Garden of Eden as well, the tree of knowledge giving man an understanding of duality and separation, while the tree of life offers a reunion with the divine. The poem feels deeply resonant to me as I'm trying to make that turn myself. For a long time, I've kind of been a ghost in the world, watching and learning, but from some distance. I'm curious if you guys have any advice on how to truly connect with the world. I feel so much curiosity and wonder over this being human, but I can't seem to settle into my belonging here. So that's the question, that's the frame that he put before this poem, right? So this poem is called Turning Point, and there's an epigraph before it that says, The road from intensity to greatness passes through sacrifice. That's Rudolf Kastner. Here's the poem. For a long time, he attained it in looking. Stars would fall to their knees beneath his compelling vision. Or, as he looked on, kneeling, his urgency's fragrance tired out a god until it smiled at him in its sleep. Towers he would gaze at so that they were terrified, building them up again suddenly, in an instant. But how often the landscape, overburdened by day, came to rest in his silent awareness at nightfall. Animals trusted him, stepped into his open look, grazing, and the imprisoned lions stared in as if into an incomprehensible freedom. Birds, as it felt them, flew headlong through it, and flowers, as enormous as they are to children, gazed back into it on and on. And the rumor that there was someone who knew how to look 
stirred these less visible creatures, stirred the women. Looking how long? For how long now, deeply deprived, beseeching in the depths of this glance? When he, whose vocation was waiting, sat far from home, the hotel's distracted, unnoticing bedroom moody around him, and in the avoided mirror once more the room, and later from the tormenting bed once more, then in the air the voices discussed, beyond comprehension, his heart, which could still be felt, debated what through the painfully buried body could somehow be felt, his heart debated and passed their judgment that it did not have love and denied him further communions. For there is a boundary to looking, and the world that is looked at so deeply wants to flourish in love. Work of the eyes is done, now go and do heart work, on all the images imprisoned within you, for you overpowered them, but even now you don't know them. Learn, inner man, to look on your inner woman, the one attained from a thousand natures, the merely attained but not yet beloved form. It's a good poem. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, well, Rilke's just a genius. I mean, I think and, uh, Rilke and uh, Rambeau are my two favorite poets, I think, if I had to screw it down uh, to two. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So what's with this ghost in the there. world thing? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'll let you, I'll let you continue. I was going to prompt, but it seemed like you have thoughts to begin with. Well, one of the things that I think that, that connects back to a lot of, of, of what we've been talking about and what we're concerned about is uh, a spiritual malaise deep within modernity that is, uh, you know, of course, perhaps related to uh, socioeconomics and social inequities, uh, which are so uh, popular and are kind of dominant focus at the moment. But there really can't be a question that there is a much deeper problem that has to be looked at from uh, words, you know, like spirit, uh, metaphysics, from uh, a kind of religious uh, point of view. It, it, it's simply bigger psychologically and culturally than just uh, disparities in wealth. And I'm not in any way suggesting that that's not a terrible problem and that the greed of our time and some of the small-mindedness of our time uh, isn't really a, a crucial consideration. Uh, but I think in an earlier episode, you mentioned that uh, there is a kind of political position that says we can you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. I'm not always sure about that, and I think that you queried that mm -hmm. at the time when you raised it. But supposing that we take uh, you know, the, the people who are very socially focused at their words and that, that we can have some other concerns... My view is that, that that's the direction that, that I feel more of a, a personal calling to. I feel in a thinking, learning, and writing, and sharing in this medium form, uh, I'm not sure I have that much to say about the, the, the social uh, economic problems of our time. Uh, I'm very concerned about them as a private citizen. Uh, there's no doubt about that, but but that's to me not where the depth of our problems come from. And if we're looking for healing solutions, I don't think that will be where we will solve them. I don't think all of the money in the world could save our current education system without a complete philosophical change in the nature 
of education. It isn't finally a, a money problem. It's not a tax revenue or tax distribution problem all by itself. There, those would help. Mm-hmm. There are certainly some things that would help. They would build, rebuild infrastructures of schools. But it's the deep infrastructure of our thinking that, that really lies below a conscious level for most of us, but certainly the majority of people when it comes through language and, and deep thought conflict built into the modern psyche. Yes, I think so too. I think that, I like that you said that you're not largely concerned with the social and economic issues because it does feel like that is the cause or those are the causes that everybody seems to take up. And what do you think about this? It seems to me that in taking up those issues, there is an implicit understanding by all involved that these problems are too big to be solved through any sort of conversation. Sort of like climate change, right? It's a problem that's too big for one person to concern themselves with too often. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't pay any attention to it, that you put your head in the sand. But it does seem that what you're suggesting is to focus on the educational and spiritual questions that can be fixed in a in microcosm, and that through that fixing, you begin to affect the macro, right, if enough people do it. Yeah, that, that's a fair statement. Um, I mean, I, I might, just to balance off the Rilke poem, share uh, a, a brief excerpt from uh, Robert N. Persig's second book, Lila or Lila, depending on how you pronounce it. I, uh, I wish that he had uh, written more. People will probably uh, know him from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which remains one of the most amazing publishing stories of of the modern age it was rejected by 144 publishers and Mm. you know it's going on to sell many millions of copies which is rather amazing considering it isn't is an openly intellectual book um i i still think it, it has been caricatured by many academic philosophers who kind of caricature anything that is more successful than they are uh but I think it has a lot to offer. But in, in this uh, sequel, he really is looking very much at uh, not just his, his core idea of the metaphysics of quality, which some people will remember, but some deep cultural patterns and confusions of category that paralyze intellectual progress and civic discourse. So I'll just read a, a couple of, of paragraphs. These are consecutive. The pursuit of happiness seemed to have become like the pursuit of some scientifically created mechanical rabbit that moves ahead at whatever speed it is pursued. If you ever did catch it for a few moments, it had a peculiar synthetic technological taste that made the whole pursuit seem senseless. Everyone seemed to be guided by an objective scientific view of life that told each person that his essential self is his evolved material body. Ideas and societies are a component of brains, not the other way around. 
No two brains can merge physically, and therefore no two people can ever really communicate, except in the mode of ship's radio operators sending messages back and forth in the night. A scientific intellectual culture had become a culture of millions of isolated people living and dying in little cells of psychic solitary confinement, unable to talk to one another, really, and unable to judge one another, because scientifically speaking, it is impossible to do so. Each individual in his cell of isolation was told that no matter how hard he tried, no matter how hard he worked, his whole life is that of an animal that lives and dies like any other animal. He could invent moral goals, but these are just artificial inventions. Scientifically speaking, he has no goals. Sometime after the 1920s, a secret loneliness so penetrating and so encompassing that we were only beginning to realize the extent of it descended upon the land. The scientific, psychiatric isolation and futility had become a far worse prison of the spirit than the old Victorian virtue ever was. Mm-hmm. I think that's very, I think that's a very interesting uh, riff on an idea that many, you know, started talking about in in the wake of, of World War II. I think a lot of people rolled with the disastrous punches of World War One. It was almost too uh, atrocious to really deal with and too much of a failure uh, of idealistic dreams. But it began to catch up with, with America, particularly in the post-war years. We've, we've talked about how 1947 was kind of a, a crucial term. He sort of puts that into a, a broader context. Um, he, his, you know, he was older, he was born in 1928, and he had a kind of broader view of the American psychological, uh, spiritual hunger and craving for meaning, that the combination of a highly commercialized science that had really become the military-industrial complex uh, intent on military goals and on capitalist goals rather than expanding human knowledge. And in an increasingly uh, paralyzed intellectual class of social elites who really couldn't see why their good intentions weren't achieving good practical results in the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I went back to that. I think it's an interesting thing to read. I have a lot of time for him. Yeah. No, I think that that's great. And I think that uh, I I was just thinking of the word atomization while you were reading that. And this idea, he talks about how people will, you know, sort of live and die the same way that an animal will. And you can kind of, you can invent all of the the reasons for for living in between there. But it's, it's you're really just this kind of mechanical um machine that is is there to you know to consume right to live and die i think about jake uh jake's email here and how he says that he feels like he's a ghost in the world and i think that that phrasing is very telling particularly the word ghost so a few things come to mind number one um our culture-wide uh fear of and unwillingness to grapple with death Right. I think that that feeling as though you might be sort of already dead 
is is touching on this this idea that that life might not ever have the kind of insolment that is necessary to uh, to complement your eventual ghostliness. But the ghost it also speaks to a kind of death of of the spirit, right? The difference between the spirit and the soul, and and this idea that when you reduce things to uh, mechanical function, the way that Persig was talking about in your quote, we all sort of become ghosts in in machines, right? Completely uninsoled beings that don't have any sort of function. So I think that a roundabout way of maybe suggesting an answer um, would be to... This has kind of been a, a track that I've been on for a while here, is to really kind of grapple with the finitude of the lived experience, right? Um, and to not really overly concern yourself with the trends and uh, sort of casino-like uh, social media gambling platforms of the day, and to attempt to really put what a life is into perspective as something that lasts, if you're lucky, about 80 years on balance. And by sort of understanding that that finitude and that within that period of time that, that you're not, you know, just a robot or some kind of animal. In fact, I think animals have a lot of, uh, of probably more soul than most humans do these days. But Taking that finitude, realizing that you don't have a whole ton of time, and committing to something very specific rather than sort of jumping around, I think might be a beginning to an answer, if one can even answer an email such as this, um, at all. Uh, well, I think that's a good start. I, I, I think there, that we can we can uh, provide some some more practical help, uh, perhaps not just in this one episode, but at large. Um, I think one starting point with, with with animals is that I mean, there's no. Uh, it's not a coincidence that that uh, the heads of gods have been shown as with the heads of animals. You know, this mm. has been oh, a wow. deep, yeah. deep human idea of the connection with animals. And to some extent, the entire nature of, of the human disease, the human spiritual problem, has been a disconnect from the continuum of non-human life forms. Uh, not just animals, but plants and whole ecosystems. Just not really having a mythological picture that connects us solidly in that context where we so mm -hmm. obviously are you know there's no it's not ne negotiable and we have faced in in the modern era an increasingly rigid mechanist materialist notion of science which is going hard now into technology and engineering with a returned capitalist delivery but meanwhile our our social humanist uh, thinkers have obsessed on uh, the social and social uh, economic uh, identity politics issues of our time. Neither of those solutions is going to lead us anywhere other than to more ghostliness, uh, more disenfranchisement of spirit. But on the idea of, of 
um, ghosts and the whole invisible world, the whole concept of a, a metaphysics beyond what you can immediately put your hands on, which is a, a pretty uh, sophomoric, simplistic idea. You know, I got to be able mm-hmm. to touch it, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a wonderful uh, moment that happened to me in New Guinea, and there were these people, you know, some sort of a mixture of, of religious and, and government officials, and they were uh, talking about one community's uh, idea of ghosts. And the idea really was to put this other group down with the, the people they were speaking to. And uh, one of the young men piped up, our ghosts are much more interesting, you know? And the whole idea was not to eliminate uh, the idea of ghosts at all, but it was to to strike a new kind of relationship with them, you know, a detente, uh, a cooperative, you know? What if we had Uh that as an idea of not trying to, you know, eliminate this, but let's let's renegotiate the contracts and be working on this collaborative effort with uh, some creatures and beings that we may not really be able to understand, whether it's a redwood, a giant tortoise, or some invisible being, you know? Yeah, no, 100%, especially if you conceive of the, of the human mind as a place where spirits meet up and your thoughts being their voices. The question doesn't become whether or not you're going to get ghosts, because you are. But we should be trying to get the most interesting ghosts possible, right? We should be trying to allow them space uh, within us rather than, you know, I think that's one of the major things, man. I think that if uh, if you deny the possibility of these spirits or ghosts having access to your, your mind... You're not going to be ghost free. You're just kind of, you know, taking the padlock off of your door and kicking it open and leaving it open overnight. And all sorts of possums and raccoons and rats are going to are going to get in there. Right. So have have interesting ghosts might be a great phrase to take with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> decode, recode, not erode. You know, we, we, we like some things that. Uh, question tangibility and question boundaries between categories. So much of our problem hinges, in my view, uh, in in the realm of, of mistaken categories, overlooked divisions and distinctions within language that then gradually build up a level of static and background noise that really destroys our capacity to not only receive and interpret signals, but, but to have any idea of what a signal would be to us, you know, in that signal and noise information uh, science sense. Uh, and I, I kind of worked out why, how this works. And this is just one of many, many mechanisms. But let me run a phrase by you. You tell me what this means, okay? Mm-hmm. Your goose is cooked. <laughs> like what it, what it means kind of colloquially? Yeah, uh, what does it mean? It means you're screwed. It means you've, you, you're caught out. Okay, well, think about that. That's exactly what it means, right? But, mm-hmm. I mean, if you take that exact structure of sentence, it could be your table is ready, sir. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I I actually <laughs> yeah. want my goose cooked. I don't. I'm not a big yeah. personal fan of raw goose. Right. Yeah, so me it, it it is on the one hand this absolute. You're screwed. That's exactly well put. But it doesn't mean that in another sort of way. There's a mental process that you have to go through to understand that. You know, Lewis Thomas said the, the, the amazing thing about language is that it allows us not to come to the point. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me give you another phrase. This, 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 is, this is simple. We see this stuff all the time. But it creeps me out. I'm looking at it right now on a bottle on my desk. Made with real juice. You know, okay. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's break this down. It is on one level rhetorical reassurance. They're proud to say it, otherwise they wouldn't have it on their label. It's supposedly a good thing. But when I think mm-hmm. about that, I think I start to get a little paranoid. What do they mean by right. real juice? What would yeah. what would fake juice be? What's the alternative to juice? Concentrate? Yeah. I'm not quite right. yeah, sure. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, which is, I mean, worse, but real juice isn't great either. Uh, oh, by the way, I just learned that The Goose is Cooked comes from the death of Jan Hus, a Czech priest in the early 14th century. His name resembled the Czech word husa, uh, which means goose, and he was uh, burnt at the stake. So his the goose was cooked. See, that's where that comes every, from. Every word and certainly every phrase and idiomatic expression is not just a story, but kind of an epic saga. It's really quite yeah. r- amazing. I want to read, uh, yeah, I want to know what Jan Hus was, was burned for. Why was the goose cooked? Because if we find out why the goose was cooked, that phrase suddenly takes on much more meaning. And it all we are surrounded and embedded and pervaded by these kinds of dynamic relationships of word and idea that go streaming right past us. One one final one which I really love. It's very simple. Breakfast all day. I mean okay, that just you know, I'm gonna accept that I'm not even gonna notice that. And then one day I did and I thought that completely undermines the idea of of breakfast. That's like saying Breaking every day fast. is Friday, you know? Yeah, right. So right. what happens with, I think this is where a lot of, of the confusion starts. And, and this, it sounds trivial to people who are thinking of big, deep things about, you know, socioeconomic disparities and social uh-huh. justice reform, but... Things start on on very, very small levels that slip by us constantly. And my view is that these strange behaviors of language, they so surround us that we switch off. And what happens is uh, uh, this vast, uh, mysterious sort of substrate of, of inattention and assumption begins to grow and grow creating like this this choking uh, sort of psychobotanical garden of misunderstanding. And we, we just get so lost in it that we, we build up patterns of ignorance. Not stupidity, but ignoring, constantly mm-hmm. ignoring. And if we think about 
that language is the habitat in which we are most fully rooted, then we are, so many of us are wandering around in a complete sleepwalking daze, not knowing the names of any of the creatures, the floor, the fauna, nothing. We're just lost. And I think that is where the sense of ghostliness comes from, where the sense of uh, impotence and not being really empowered enough to to lead and captain our own lives, uh, because we're just simply walking around not noticing things. It's right there in the Bible. It's what it's what Adam did. He he named all the animals, and there's you know it goes a few lines before that. You know, in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was God. So. People have known this for a very, very long time, the importance of language, uh, just how sort of important and sacred it is. This is one of my favorite lines of thought that we've had on the show. Of course, it's important to me and it's important to you because we're writers. But I think that when you begin to understand that the phrase, your goose is cooked, I wonder how often we use that when we're referring to you know, somebody who's committed apostasy, right? And we, and we don't even realize that we're doing it. We don't realize that there's a, there's a quality to that idiom that lends itself to, you know, somebody who's being metaphorically burned at the stake for having heretical beliefs, you know, or breakfast all day. What is, what is, what does that do? You know what I mean? If, if you, if your day never really has a beginning, right? If you're, you know, because breakfast, you know, you're breaking your fast. You've been sleeping and now you're you're breaking your fast. Well, somebody would say, well, David, Chris, I mean, come on, man. It's because there are specific breakfast foods like pancakes and waffles and bacon and eggs that are considered to be breakfast foods. So when they serve breakfast all day, they're serving breakfast foods all day. But why don't they say that? Why don't they say breakfast foods served all day? They don't. They say breakfast all day. And they wouldn't really even acknowledge that there's any sort of, of, of logical conflict. And none of these three examples is, is significant, gigantically unto itself. And that's not my point. But if you start to multiply these exponentially, if you realize how completely riddled all of the major languages are, but English in particular is just rife with them, and they go unexamined, and just accepted, and they go streaming by, and mm-hmm. they build up frames of inattention. You know, frames can be uh, frames of inattention as well as attention. I think we often forget that. Uh, they certainly set up frames of expectation where we can, you know, actually just take an enormous amount of stuff for granted. It becomes invisible, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I think mm-hmm. this is one of the things that we can see uh, as, a, as a real practical problem of our educational philosophy. Uh, this is more true in America than anywhere. We are manufacturing ignorance, as in, what I can choose to ignore because I just want to have pizza and get laid because someone else knows this stuff. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we get people who go hyper-specialized. 
and they're like, you know, <laughs> gamers who only play in one world. They're doing yeah. effectively the same stuff, but they can't really get with or talk to people in the other gaming world. Completely siloed. And I think that's yeah, really absolutely. where we're at. Yeah, and I can think of some even recent examples of some slogans that we've seen. Uh, build back better is one. Uh, what does that mean to you, Chris? What does building back better bring to mind? You know, really all I can think of is just kind of cheap alliteration, you know? It, it, yeah. it just seems like an empty uh, phrase that... Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think that's another way of of, of kind of uh, creating disengagement when you think, oh, look, that's a slogan that I don't really have to take very seriously. You know, mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. everybody's awesome. You know, it's like, oh, OK, <laughs> well, I'm going to pay a lot of attention another, to that. You know, another one and one, one that I think is very sinister was one put forward by the World Economic Forum in 2020 in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic which was a plan called the Great Reset. Oh, I knew um, I was hoping you were going to say that. Yes. Well, check it out. Check it out. Okay. When you reset something, what does that process look like? You turn off whatever it is that you're doing. You power it down completely. You erase all the data within it, right? You get rid of all of your hard work, and then you reboot it from start and start all over again and i don't think uh people quite they think reset oh okay cool yeah we'll just we'll just start over we'll you know people think of debt jubilees or you know um you know kind of reinventing the economic system to include something like a universal basic income or maybe they think of climate lockdowns or something lockdowns another very interesting word by the way do you know where they do lockdowns prison in prison, correct. Um, but the idea of a reset, when I heard that, I was like, does anybody else feel like this is incredibly sinister? Is it just me? No, that really got to me. And the, 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 the instance where it really hit home was when the Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau, who seems kind of, I mean, I'm, he might be a nice sort of, you know, snaggy God, no. type uh -huh. of guy but he seems uh -huh. to me like a, a, a soap opera star you know I yeah. just can't quite take him seriously he reminds me of sort of an obsequious Robert Wagner you know yeah. Um, yeah. and when he mentioned that I thought the great reset I thought oh no <laughs> yeah yeah he's great because you see him in all these pictures of like of him with his big blue eyes like wearing a what do you call those? Saris, I think they are, yeah. you know, and he's, he's sort of got his hands in prayer and he's kind of gazing just off screen in a very uh, kind of quote unquote spiritual kind of inclusive way. And you just think to yourself, like, this is beyond parody at this point. Right. Like, I, I can't I can't particularly believe that, you know, the Hindu people of Canada are are looking at this and thinking, oh, great. You know, finally. We have some representation in this <laughs> in this guy, you know, but yeah, no, the great reset, uh, the, the way that these slogans kind of work. Now, there are some slogans that I think are pretty good. I think just do it is good. I think Nike's slogan, I think it's simple. I think it's applicable to a lot of things. I think it's vague enough to uh, to kind of work. But I, I think just do it's OK. 
Well, I I guess I've just heard that from too many different uh, sources. I, I think it certainly mm-hmm. was a, a good, strong meme, and 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 from an advertising point of view, worked because I know a lot of people. Uh, who ordinarily wouldn't have been attracted to either that brand and its products or that slogan seemed to feel that was was good. But I just want to go back to the reset for a moment because this is a, yes, this please. is a good fair Oklahoma question. Okay, uh-huh. what's okay. another <laughs> world that we get we hear reset in? I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. Friday night league night. That's your clue. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Bowling. Uh, bowling. Bowling. Yeah. Yeah. Reset the pins. You yeah. smash them all down, and a new set of pins come. But you know what? Those pins look exactly like the ones before. Isn't that funny? That's strange how that works. Yeah. In and it's all done. Uh, it's done. It's done mechanized too. By the way, it's not lost on me that that used to be a job. A pin resetter was a thing that people did. And now it's just a, a big, frightening machine that, that comes down and puts new pins down. Harold, um, Herman Melville was a pin setter briefly when he had uh, jumped ship in, in Honolulu. Mm-hmm. Or they busted him in Tahiti, but yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it was a... My father was a pin setter. It, you know, it, it, the mechanization part of it. But the whole reset thing, I think, is is very ominous. Uh, and so mm-hmm. many of these phrases that seem so, um, I mean, just even your call is important to us. I mean, it's like, well, I've been on the phone for an hour and that's just demonstrably my, my not dad, true. My dad sent me a, a meme that it was a guy on the phone. It was like a New Yorker cartoon or something. And the phone says, uh, your call is important to us. Please stay on the line until your call is no longer important to you. Oh wow! I like that. There's there's at least a little yeah. humanity in that. Yeah, that's not an AI <laughs> written line. Yeah, yeah. That should be instead of uh, that automated message. It should just be you know some somebody getting paid ten dollars an hour that comes on and says hang on, and then puts you back on hold. Because <laughs> then at least you know there's a person on the other end. Well, it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's ways to drive people completely insane, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. But I think one important point to mention about language, because this is a kind of uh, a real interest of ours, and we'll keep bringing up uh, new and strange examples of confusions, deep, deeply hardwired, or, or as we've started to use, soldered in to language. Uh, I like that verb because I think it is often soldered in some of these confusions. There is no one clear source of them. We 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 may blame advertising and politicians. They are certainly uh, and late night talk show hosts and social media. We can certainly see some uh, some patterns of of where these phrases come from and and what the purpose is behind them. Uh, because they always do have a, a rhetorical purpose, um, sometimes not very clearly disguised. But there's an enormous amount of language that we simply don't understand, like the goose is cooked, because we've lost track of the stories. We've lost mm-hmm. track mm-hmm. of the mythologies and magic and the fields of life that they come from, the working fields. I mentioned in an earlier episode about the thousands of terms 
that come from the nautical world, serious sailing as an industry, you know? And we would have no idea now. There's a whole world of horse words, you know, when horses were the main source of transport. And on and on it goes. And so when people say they feel befuddled or bamboozled or bewildered in the face of, of the world and modern society, well, there's a damn good reason. Because the language that's actually in their head, the signal that's in their head that surrounds them all the time is something that a lot, for a large part they just don't understand. Very interesting. Well, Chris, we have a lot to talk about today. We, uh, our intro is probably run the longest. This reminds me of the trend in recent films of putting the title card later and later in the movie until you get some films now that actually have the title card at the end of the movie. Um, so we do have some things to talk about today. We've got about 15 minutes or so left in the free episode. I'm curious, how, how would you like to proceed on this first opening free episode? Well, we, we do want to explain to people where we're going behind the paywall and, and to openly encourage some movement yeah. there because uh, we, we will be following up uh, topics. We're going to try to tease issues out, interrogate them a little bit further, look at our own positions a little bit more. We have some topics coming up where uh, Dave and I are really going to question each other and, and really try to uh, converse but, but really explore uh, through dialogue and, and this kind of interview process. So there's some exciting things going on there. Uh, and, and we really do want to move people in, into that world because any of the things that we're interested in, which uh, really have to do with the nature of culture in the modern age towards a new anthropology, some techniques of personal healing and reorientation, which I think a lot of us feel the need, uh, some of the key factors impacting on us, not just ever new technology, but some of these deeper issues from the past that have not gotten uh, any real full treatment, certainly not any that I'm aware of since the 1970s, which I think is uh, something that we're going to uh, try to remedy. Um, but we have a couple of major paradigms to explore. And I think that if people could look forward to some kind of real structure and uh, not a planned evolution, but a very organic evolution about the second phase or our paywall uh, programs, that they will find the, the, a, a reward for that adventurous spirit. Um, I think that we really do have some navigational guidelines there to get us moving. Uh, but honestly, not a full stop clarity of, of destination, that we're really trying to build a suite of ideas with a community in a very different sort of approach to intellectual property. Uh, it, it's a bigger goal because in the end, one of our key points is that we cannot leave language and culture and our destiny, so to speak, in the hands of apparent experts. It's too important. We yeah. have too much responsibility to ourselves and to each other 
just to turn away and go, well, somebody knows this, so I don't have to, you know. Um, mm-hmm. No, it, mm-hmm. it is important to know the difference between weight and mass, to have an idea mm-hmm. of, of what volume is, to, to right. understand why we might need different approaches to our language because sentences are relentlessly linear and often at best two-dimensional. Let, you know, read in a certain direction, left to right, on and on and on, the deep structures of thought that are paralyzing the kind of thought and the kind of communication we can have. Well said. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And on my note, I think Chris just did a great job of laying that out very eloquently. But uh, my pitch for what's behind the paywall is that I'm just having a lot of fun. And I was talking to Chris about this behind the paywall in the last episode. So for subscribers already, you're going to hear it again. But I'm just having a lot of fun. I think we've always had a really good time on this show. But there's something uh, mischievous and fun about realizing that <laughs> that less people are listening. You know, it's kind of like you, you feel like there are fewer eyes on you and there is a a ticket that's been bought, you know, you buy the ticket, you take the ride. So it's kind of a vote of confidence for whoever is listening to the back half of these episodes that we can, uh, loosen up a little bit. You know, I don't think that our show has been stodgy or, you know, I don't think that we've necessarily been, uh, like, but we have, I mean, we have, we've been biting our tongues a little bit because, you know, for a, a young podcast, we have a, really decently large listenership and and that kind of gets to you you know what i mean like you start to think oh man you know everybody's a lot of people are listening to this i gotta kind of watch what i say and then you get behind the paywall and it's just like okay we are now among friends and we're going to take our shoes off here and get serious about these intellectual ideas about you know for example the crystal radio the pirate radio and the ghost radio which i've been thinking about all week since we talked about it last week um but we're also we're also going to have fun you know we're metaphorically going to have a few beers and uh you know cut loose a little so go over to patreon.com slash no country podcast click subscribe for eight bucks a month, you get an extra hour every week. Chris and I show up every week to do this. We have uh, proven our track record. Um, we enjoy doing it, so it's not like we're going to miss it. Although I, I, uh, I did last week. Uh, I was so kind of haggard with my with my son, my beautiful bouncing baby boy. Yeah, uh, we ended up we we ended up recording that on Monday instead of Sunday because I I called Chris I was like man I'm so sorry I just I completely lost track of time but we we're on schedule we're having fun uh we're 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 talking we're talking that that mess right and uh, yeah it's just a good time man I'm just having a great time with this me thing. too me too do you want to hear to close out this show uh, a dream I had. It ties sure. in with our celebrity uh, series, which uh, I've gotten a lot of personal good feedback about that. 
we were looking at the cult of celebrity for people who uh, haven't checked that out. It's only uh, it's pretty recent, and it might be something that we will uh, reapproach from a couple of different <laughs> angles. But in my dream, right? Okay, this is it, it's still a relatively normal, realistic world. Uh, maybe a little bit in the future, but uh, there are lots of holograms of famous celebrities. Uh, Elvis, Sinatra, the Beatles, Nirvana, you know, and you can buy these things and some people start uh, using them as rentals for parties and private functions. And in the dream, I win this state-of-the-art Elvis. It's the best one by far. And it's got the best selection of music, like three hours of his concerts. <clears throat> and I think, well, this could be a good money spinner on the side. So I, I set it up. I've got this sort of warehouse, and I, I test it out, and it's perfect. And I, 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 get, I book this gig. It's actually a much fancier party than I really want to. I don't really want to be working on that scale, too much pressure, but I can't turn the money down. So I, I take the, the hologram Elvis to set up at this amazing mansion for the big party. And there's a malfunction. Elvis is perfect fidelity, just absolutely as realistic as you can imagine, except he's just a little bit under three feet high. <laughs> And I think, oh, my God, <laughs> these are really rich people. These are A-listers and politicos, yeah. and this could be my ticket for I'm, I'm going to get crucified. And I, I tell the host, look, and I said, look, I'm sorry. I just, I, I don't know how to fix, you know. I, I think, he goes, well, look, we can't cancel now. We can't, I, I can't cancel the party. You're going to have to go ahead with this and end live with it. Whatever damage it does to your reputation as a caterer and party supplier. <coughs> mm -hmm. So I go ahead and I am thinking this crowd of fancy schmancy people is, they're going to eat me alive. I'm waiting. Yeah, you're for, thinking that your, your goose is cooked. Exactly. And midget Elvis cranks up, you know, and it's just crystal perfect real life. And I'm waiting for the, the derision and get, you know, to get really cooked. Nope. People love mini Elvis. They go absolutely <laughs> ape. And overnight in this weird uh, sub industry of hologram party machine people, everyone starts adjusting you know, their Jay-Z or Beyonce or Sinatra down to mini size. And all of the people who have older equipment that they can't adjust the size, they start losing gigs. So I have no idea what that means, but I woke up laughing. I woke up laughing. That is a, that's a fantastic dream. Yeah, that is awesome. It's it to me, it, it feels like a commentary on how we want celebrities to be pets um, the fact that it's a hologram to begin with, right? That it's that you don't necessarily want the actual person. You don't want the real Beyonce, the real Jay Z. You can't have the real Elvis anymore. But 
you know, if you could, you wouldn't even want him. You know, you want this sort of hyper-realistic facsimile, but smaller bite size, something that you can kind of carry around with you. Exactly. I think that is the model of, of the pet. You know, we, we say, on one hand, we want these larger-than-life figures. We use that phrase several times in the Cult of Celebrity series. But I wonder if that's completely a lie. I think we want the portability. We want that control. We want the sense that this is a little uh, toy for us to, mm -hmm. to manipulate. Yeah, and you often see that with artists who aren't able to get outside of their comfort zone. It's why people like Madonna and David Bowie, I think, reinvented themselves so of so often because you'll find yourself, you know, just having to go out and play the hits. Otherwise, uh, you'll have to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again if you don't, you know, display to your audience that you are a multifaceted human being. You kind of have to do it with these different kabuki masks to make it extremely explicit that you know i am different now you know david bowie is now ziggy stardust now he's the what is it the thin white duke was yeah, that was that yeah. his, that, that was his problematic face um <laughs> but you, you you have to you have to go through these these shifts in order to to signal that you're something different otherwise you run the risk of becoming a three-foot hologram of yourself and i think that in an age where everybody has you know, forget your, your 15 minutes. Everybody gets like two and a half minutes now, right? And it's awful. There's a phrase that I love on the internet where <clears throat> nobody wants to become the main character of Twitter, even for a day, uh, because you'll just get, <laughs> if you're the main character, that's bad news. I was the main character of my <clears throat> section of Twitter about a month ago, and it wasn't fun. Um, so, you know, you, you, you want to make sure that you, uh, you know, that you don't become this, uh, this three foot hologram of yourself, even for, even for two minutes, right? Because the people are going to love it and that's exactly how they want it. But, uh, but yeah, man, that's great. So that'll close out our first hour. Thanks everybody for listening. Please do head over. There'll be a link in the show notes to our Patreon. And when we come back, Chris, what are we going to start off with? Well, David, I think we might do a little bit of a recap of some of the the the, the core themes, kind of the the river eddy, eddies that have brought us to this point. But then to look very uh, to begin the process of really unpacking these three tools that we've introduced of the crystal radio, pirate radio, and ghost radio. Excellent. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. All right, everybody, thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Patreon bonus hour of No Country. I'm still J. David Osborne, and I'm pretty sure that's still Chris Sacknesson. Chris, is that you? You know, do I have to validate that? That's a little scary. I mean, I think maybe we should show each other our driver's license or something. I'm, I'm not I sure. I am not a that. robot. I am not a <laughs> robot. Well, Chris, on this most fun and momentous third episode of the Patreon exclusive episodes. I believe you would like to reiterate uh, where we're at with uh, Crystal Radio, Pirate Radio, and Ghost Radio. And what I'm going to do is listen carefully. And if at any point in time I'm confused, or if uh, 
the way that I was conceiving of it doesn't quite mesh with what uh, with what you've got. I'll ask you about that, and we'll sort of uh, be giving our audience a more in depth look at what this concept means because it's it's it has three facets to it, and those three things are doing three different things that sort of tie into each other, and it's a big idea. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you got. So take it away, sir. Okay, we will we will start off throwing uh, some big ideas around because, as David just said, this is this is a journey. This is an adventure of the mind, and and we don't pretend to have answers here necessarily. We we are trying to ask more interesting questions. So here's my first one: What if culture with a capital C is not something humans make? A messy amalgam of languages none of us invented, uh, technologies we may or may not understand, customs, belief, social conventions, artifacts, architecture. What if instead culture with a capital C is a kind of energy field like unto the known and accepted fields of physics? Weren't they once mysterious and magical? I think they are still to many of us. 98.5% of people don't really understand them now. But change your frame, and you may see frames differently. Change your mind width, and you may start receiving other frequencies. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of our big starting point. And I just will say, and I think our audience will appreciate there are a couple of clear references here. One is Jung's Collective Unconscious, and the other is Rupert Sheldrake's Theory of Morphogenetic Fields. Both of these ideas have intrigued Dave and myself a great deal. They intrigue a lot of people. Uh, They're interesting metaphors, at least. But it's hard to put them into... Uh, a scientific context. It's hard to put them into a logical context with other social science ideas. And one of the things that we seek to do is to query, interrogate, prosecute, and go exploring this to see if our notion of ghost radio, which draws on Jung's ideas, draws on some of Sheldrake's models, but is much more psychological and language uh, based. So that's a starting point. I I will give a couple of uh, background ideas about those three elements, crystal radio, pirate radio, and ghost radio. But David, before I do that, do you want to just have some pushback on on that idea? Is there anything that's not clear or you think that even as a starting point, an opening Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, kind of preamble that needs uh, some beating over the head? It's a big question, man. Okay, so this is a big one. Um, If we're considering culture with a capital C to have influence uh, over, over humans, to be a thing that is not generated by humans, but that is influencing us, how do you conceive of this power is this a god is it a spirit is it a a network of spirits is it the fundamental stuff of existence how is that sitting in your mind right now 
Okay, well, a network of spirits certainly comes to mind, and I actually have that that phrase to uh, to put forward in in a moment or two. But I I think that um, between a f- an energy field, which is a broad idea, uh, but you know when it, when we look at the the known energy fields of physics, there's quite a bit of difference between them, and yet. We're able to, in category terms, in logic terms, and in, in philosophical terms, deal with them as fields. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we could also maybe uh, replace that with a, with a more organic word of ecosystem. Mm. Um, okay, okay. Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. Now, with the mechanism of, of language... <clears throat> That's something that I've been uh, puzzling over. So culture with a capital C come through humans creates the things that we know of as cultures with lowercase c, and language is the mechanism by which that happens. Does that extend to non-human persons as well? Animals? Yeah. Or ghosts? Both. <laughs> Both. Well, I think it does, and I, I think that what what as we get a greater understanding of this uh, energy field or ecosystem and begin to track it in in some kind of patterning sort of way that may be outside the frames that we've used in the past. You know, there is a, is an old adage that if you continue to get no progress on a question. Perhaps you're asking the wrong question or framing it incorrectly. You need to get some kind of aerial view. That's another metaphor that, that we've used of, of the, some very interesting and bizarre ancient art that somehow managed to find an aerial mm-hmm. view without any physical explanation. So in some sense, I think that is, you know, if we look at the Nazca lines, uh, the Blythe and Taglio is just around the corner from me. I think in some way this is what we're trying to do, the, the kind of the impossible, and yet it, it has been done, um, to get this, this view of, of where language as mechanism impacts other life forms. We certainly know there is a very strong link uh, with the animal world. Uh, certainly in, you know, in, in, in terms of some animals. Uh, Gregory Bateson has done some great work on the paralinguistic connection between dogs and humans. Right. And we know how powerful that, that bond has been for at least 10,000 years. And in, we're getting more evidence that it's going back further. And we're, we're starting to really recognize that, that our notion of the human story is deeply flawed um, mm-hmm. and is benefiting from new data. But we can see about how the burial of dog bones relative to human bones shows a kind of ceremonial companion, uh, perhaps worship, but I think more of a working relationship there. Uh, yeah. We are seeing in terms of AI systems and I'm very high on this whole new approach of computational linguistics. I believe you, early in the series, read a kind of a poem or, or passage of writing, computer-generated, based on your writing, but not your writing. Yes. Um, 
And I've had that experience too. And I think that we are looking at a, a world very quickly upon us where there is another non-human approach to language that is nonetheless uh, motivated, driven, um, in a kind of psychology sense, as humans are, by some of the deep structural characteristics of language. The king is coming. That's what was repeated over and over again in yeah. that very spooky passage that I read that was auto-generated. It read my novel and then decided to write some things back to me. If that's not a ghost radio, I'm not really sure what exactly. is. Exactly. And I think if we really become attentive to this in a kind of enthusiastic, you know, in Theos, the God was in, you know, that kind of being willing to be haunted by this energy and and in that willingness to also say, well, we actually want to be a bit more familiar with it, you know? Yeah, right. How does it work, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, those are those were my questions for what you brought initially. So I'm pretty satisfied with that for now. I think that conceiving of this as a web of spirits or a network of spirits works for me as a framework uh, to begin with, and I'm sure we will develop that more over time. But that was nagging at me because there's this, um, and perhaps it's incorrect, but it's a very human need to understand, okay, well, where does something come from and what does it want? I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Is that is that just too uh anthropocentric really to to even conceive of something as having a goal well the short answer is yes uh do you recall me talking about the exercise i do with my students where we we really think of ourselves as writers you know in the writer room of a, of a tv show uh -huh. And we are seriously trying to invent some new aliens or a new alien type of presence. And it's very hard to do because, of course, we've been exposed, you know, to these ideas from every, you know, angle. And we know some bright people in Hollywood and elsewhere are, are working on that idea all the time. There's been some great science fiction. Um, but one of the things that my students have come back to pretty regularly is breaking down the binary between individuals and that sort of species sense of an alien with a single entity, kind of as in a, a god figure, that, that somehow what would be really alien is something that transcends or oscillates between those two positions. So I think that in, in terms of spatializing and localizing where the ghost radio signal comes from and what its goal is, I think from our human perspective, are completely reasonable, but we're going to have to modify our frames in order to make that work by definition. Right. Because it reminds me of perhaps asking what gravity wants, you know, what does the electromagnetic field want? Well, that might not exactly be the right question. It might be a fundamental property of reality as we understand it, but wanting, you know, with a cap capital W might not be the way to look at it. But okay, I'm 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 satisfied with that so far. Okay. Okay. 
Well, just a little recap for people about where we started and where the, the, the bigger context, the matrix that these ideas fit into. One of the things that uh, brought David and me together was a, a concern about uh, an implied progression or evolution, which is a signature of, of Western cultural thinking. And it's the movement from magic, and we mean animist magic as in practiced by indigenous people, to religion, we might mean the, the major religions, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, and then science. And science is drawn on many different sources, of course, but we really mean Western Enlightenment era science that drew on the past of the Greeks and the Egyptians, which was nurtured and kept alive by the Islamic geniuses of North Africa during the Dark Ages, um, more so than the, the tremendous innovations of, of ancient China. There is some tremendous work there. Joseph Needham's book on the history of science in China is just phenomenal. But obviously, there have been many, many contributing forces. There's a huge melting pot. But the scientific method, uh, a belief in an objective body of knowledge with, unfortunately, a very, very strong commitment to materialism in a physical sense, um, mechanism as opposed to an organic belief. And we can see science in terms of getting more confusing when it moves into things like theoretical physics, quantum mechanics, um, but very rigid when in, say, the life sciences when we looked at behaviorism. But we looked at this progression, we just said, look, this is nonsense. This is brutally uh, simplistic. It's vague. There's not really a clear path of how these different human practices and belief systems have evolved. They're not well defined. Uh, if there is a timeline, well, it's kind of murky. It's certainly not as nice a timeline as we'd like for a, a school wall. Um, but it, it really has a, a deep moralistic problem soldered into it that it, it, it makes history look like an, an advancement from primitive to complexity, with complexity being somehow good without really any question. And it, it allows us to, to feel superior uh, to, for instance, indigenous people around the world, to different moments in history. We always celebrate our technology stuff that's in our lifetimes because it's really cool, you know, and we forget that, you know, technology is a very ancient idea. There's nothing more technological than a beautiful arrowhead and nothing harder to make. Then we, we, you know, we looked and we said, look, in our own lifetimes, we see elements of magic, religion, and science entwining and interlacing all the time. It's, it's called pop culture, and we see it in individuals. Uh, you know, Newton, one of the greatest scientists, kind of the, one of the, the founders of, of this whole thing, was, you know, an alchemist, a religious fanatic, and, you know, one of the great scientific leaders. We see this in many people. Many people. So this this idea that you can just separate these things is is really disturbing. But our third level of problem is one that we have given some time to, and we will give more time to, is that science, sadly, in actual practice, has in relatively recent times become scientism, which 
in our view, is, is a corporatized, capitalized uh, practice for money, not searching for uh, answers to questions about life and the nature of, of existence and humanity. It's, it's become increasingly about technology and engineering in terms of apps and uh, new ways to order pizza. And in that process of scientism, it's become uh, really at odds with its native characteristics of curiosity, skepticism, open inquiry, self-correction, and rejection of dogma. And it's, in our view, become effectively a, you know, an orthodox social belief system, which ironically almost verges on a cult religion. Um, and, and there are some serious, serious problems with that. But to go further into practice, scientism is not practiced by very many people. It gives an enormous number of people an excuse to tune out because they have their priest cast of CNN experts who come on and tell them, well, this is what's going on. You don't really have to know any of the basic principles. Uh, you know, even fundamental things that could be taught really in one day in a physics class, a couple of days in a biology class. No, you don't really have to pay attention to that because there, there are experts in charge. And meanwhile, our experts, even some very, very well-intentioned people, and certainly some very bright people, have gotten increasingly specialized to the point where they oftentimes really can't communicate with each other. They're siloed. They're certainly siloed in, in academic uh, battling for funding terms, getting the corporate gig terms. You know, it, it's a real mess. Yeah, um, yeah. I, so, I recall, recall during the pandemic, uh, whenever a virologist would say something controversial, people would say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that you were an epidemiologist. And conversely, when an epidemiologist would say something controversial, they'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you, that you were a virologist, right? So <laughs> it was this yeah. battle of the battle of the specifications, basically, of the, of the credentialed white coats. It's terrible. It really is terrible. And we, we forget how much brilliance and excitement came out of the 19th century of, of what we might call gifted amateurs, Yes, you know, particularly right. in the life sciences. And admittedly, some of those people uh, had some money and certainly had some education, but not all, not all by a long shot. And we forget mm -hmm. how much of, of the, the um, unexamined contribution of women uh, in many, many fields, you know, out collecting things, involved with agriculture, working with animals, looking around, the whole midwife there's a lot of Western medicine that has come out of midwife magic, you mm -hmm. know. Um, mm -hmm. So there, there's a real loss of that amateur spirit, which kind of got us started looking at Charles Fort and his exuberance for anomalous things and things that may not fit into the, the program, you know. and that, The damned facts. Yeah. And this is where I see the crystal radio. Uh, it's a symbol and metaphor for do-it-yourself science, home projects, making stuff with your kids in the garage, examining things for yourself, reclaiming both uncertainty and wonder. You know, wonder. 
getting our hands back on some knowledge ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of, so my job before the pandemic hit was uh, I taught children as a sort of field trip after school program. And we would do a, a sort of chemistry demonstration for them with something called elephant toothpaste, right? And right. you you basically, you mix food dye with um, some, some acidic chemicals and the elephant toothpaste will just shoot up out of a Coke bottle all the way up to the ceiling. You know, this bright green uh, foam will come out and the kids just loved it. And what I like about elephant toothpaste is a sub metaphor to the crystal radio. Uh, but the crystal radio fits into this as well, is that there's no real, there's no real purpose to the elephant toothpaste, right? You can't, you can't fly to Dubai on a cloud of elephant toothpaste, right? But it's that ability to combine things in your garage, uh, to sort of wow your kids with a neat science experiment and to actually, you know, get your hands dirty. You have to wear gloves and goggles when you mess with elephant toothpaste because some of that stuff you don't want to get on your skin. Um, so there is, there is a question though, that I have about this before we continue. Um, when we're talking about the progression from animism to religion, to science, to scientism, and we are pointing out all of the sort of bureaucratic issues that scientism has with people, um, essentially being afraid of losing their tenure, losing their funding, if they if they sort of step out of line and all this, you know, it sounds like we're being a little down on science as it is. So, but what about you know the invention of a of a vaccine for polio, right? What about the fact that we can fly to Dubai now? What what about the fact that we have the internet? You know, is is all of that um, is all of that kind of for nothing? Is that is that just I mean, I don't know. Is that is that something that we should, you know, sort of ignore? I mean, I, I, I want people to sort of understand where we're coming from here when it comes to our perspective on, on science itself. Well, I think that's a great question. I think that's exactly the kind of pushback and, and uh, interrogative uh, engagement we should both be having. What we should feel is, is, is gratitude, you know, an immense sense of gratitude uh, that these innovations have been made possible. And, I mean, take uh, one of the things that really uh, amazes me is anesthesia, you know? I mean, think about uh, what medical and dental practices were like not that long ago. I had a dentist in, in, in rural Australia who had some uh, dental equipment in the front window and my God, it looked so sinister and frightening and just <laughs> horrifying. You know, the levels of pain. I mean, uh, Rio's just, just given birth. Think about the number of babies and mothers we were losing in childbirth not that long ago. So, no, I think there's a tremendous sense of gratitude and engagement. But I think the way we should engage is, is really learning as much as we can about these things and not going down the path of ignoring and saying, well, I don't need to know anything about this because someone else does. I mean, I, 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 I fair enough. You, you, there are certain, you know, people who are not going to get on top of differential equations. I understand mm -hmm. that. 
But I think it would be helpful to know what what calculus does. Why was it invented? What, what does it allow us to do? Why is it a prerequisite for certain subjects? You know, I, I think we need to just get more engaged with things. And I, I think a, another example is language. I think English language speakers would struggle with, uh, with Mandarin. I understand that. But mm-hmm. I don't think that's the argument for being monolingual. Full stop. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, my picking up Spanish in El Paso was one of the best things that I've done. Um, I, my son will grow up bilingual and as soon as, uh, he's eh, maybe three or four years old, it's funny you mentioned that because we were going to put him in Mandarin classes just because I think that for the coming, uh, sort of sea change in in global power i think it's it's very smart to have your child able to speak some form of chinese preferably mandarin right but i think the the childlike um curiosity is what we're getting at here and i think that's what the crystal radio really exemplifies is this you know something that a kid would ask you how does a plane stay in the air me personally i want to be able to answer that question you know i I, want to know Exactly. I mean, I, I mean, for starters, you want to recognize the curiosity and not beat the hell out of someone for being curious. This is the real crux of the education system's failure. It discourages curiosity. And working these things out together and being able to say, look, you know, I don't know. I, I think I, I think let's do some let's do a project together. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, let's um, see if we can keep a let's let one of the projects that I would do with the kids. We had these little motors, and it was up to them to design a paper airplane that we could attach this tiny motor to, and they would compete to see who could keep theirs in the air the longest. But it's a great 30 minute project to teach them some pretty simple concepts about aerodynamics. Um, and I don't think adults should be embarrassed to do that. I really like, I think. We should all go out and find out how can we can you keep something in the air? Can you make a paper airplane? I, I think that's more interesting than being up to date on the latest uh, you know controversy over who you know what pop star said the you know the wrong pronoun or whatever's going on right now. Oh, it's so much more interesting, and it it, it really in terms of paying dividends. I mean. Who knows where it could lead? I, I mean, I thinking of airplanes. You know, the Wright brothers have been sort of enshrined in mythology, and and what a strange uh, team they were. Very eccentric brothers, but you know, I mean, they started off as humble bicycle repair people. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You know. You know, and and it was really their entire frame of possibility came out of very simple experiments. Tinkering, to use a word that we used in our last episode, there is so much to be said for tinkering and and not having some great end goal. But, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it leads somewhere. And think about Mm -hmm. all the great chefs. You know, Mm -hmm. they don't always start off with a perfect recipe. They're they're thinking about, well, I might try this with this and that. You know, it's it's the fooling around. It's the tinkering. It's making a mess. Yeah. And and God, more writers should be doing that. Unfortunately. Oh my God, more writers you know? should be doing that. Really quickly, as an anecdote, I saw this great snippet from the New York Times, and it was uh, it was printed in I believe January of 1903, and it was from a, an engineer expert of the day, right? 
and his article was about why it would take man one million years to be able to achieve flight and he had worked out these calculations about every step of the way about how it would have had it would have to take place in order for man to achieve flight and not you know a little bit less than 12 months later the wright brothers did it and i think that's what we're really kind of getting at when you see the paper of record even today saying something about how xyz is impossible or this and that is a conspiracy theory we're really seeing within 6 to 12 months all of those things that these kind of fringe wild-eyed lunatic tinkerers have been saying is true for years <laughs> come true almost immediately after publication in the New York Times. Um, I know I beat up on them a lot, but it just happens so often. It's hard for me to to hold back on that. Oh no, I understand, and I, I I'm I'm even uh, I'm even angrier about all that. I, I think one way uh, a frame uh, for listeners is that we have somehow uh, denigrated the the eccentrics of of the world, and it's from those people that the breakthrough innovations have come. And we can't systematize them and, and ismize them and institutionalize them. That's not how those kind of people work. And it's not how, our, how culture has really functioned. So that's something that we need to repair and change with, I'm hoping for, you know, I'm seeing around me um, about three or four couples uh, you and Rios's age, and, and they're starting families, and I, I think it's really exciting. They're kind of at similar stages in their lives and in their relationships, so they're, they're well-placed. These are all intentional uh, family launches, and I just see that as being a tremendous uh, expression of magical optimism and belief in the future, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I am angry as uh, from my professional teaching point of view, how the education system is betraying that optimism and hope. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not down with that at all. And right. I think we've got to, to fight back on that front. And I think this is where the pirate radio idea comes yeah, in. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, I'm hearing pirate radio and what you're saying. It's, it's an alternative form of education, self-learning, community building, community nurturing. Uh, it, it's a different kind of grid. You know, we're, we're saying that, that there are certain channels that just aren't working on this level. I mean, of course, we may not just give up on Twitter and the Internet. Of course not. And of course, we may still be buying things, you know, on, you know, on and on and on. But that may not be the driving force that we really feel that we can take control yeah. and, and use some counter magic within this complicated uh, nexus of, of forces and to really connect with some other like-minded people, like-souled, mm-hmm. uh, you know. I, I'd mm-hmm. like to hear like-souled come back as a phrase. It used to be around. But an alternative... Yeah. Uh, an alternative social system based on a different level of values than are really in circulation in our larger social media world. Yeah, well, and, you know, when people hear the shift from religion to science, I think a lot of 
people bristle at that. But essentially what we're saying is that the pirate radio understands technology as a tool in a toolkit, right? It's outside of the dominant uh, paradigm of, of, you know, of discourse, of, of curiosity, of invention, but it's, it's using the tools of radio to disseminate that information the same way that you and I are using podcasts and the internet to do that. But it's not a, um, a, so, a sort of religious uh, focus on the medium itself, right? So I would say that in our sort of modern times, people have become very materialistically obsessed with different technologies progressing uh, to the point where they can't really progress anymore. As you brought up, we're just inventing new ways to deliver pizza or make vending machines or, or what have you. But the eccentric, the person who is, you know, tinkering with their crystal radio, when you move to that next stage of, of pirate radio, you're taking that same kind of, of spirit and applying it to a wider community, using the tools that you have available to you to, um, to disseminate that information. I have this great book. It's called uh, Appalachian, or it's called Backwoods Witchcraft. That's what it is. And it's all great about... Title. It's all about this guy who grew up in West Virginia. He he went around and he, because uh, his family were all uh, conjure men, and uh, you know his dad could, be, um, you know, was really good at removing warts. At uh, uh, forget how he did that. There was some sort of something very strange. I think he used pennies or something like that to get rid of warts. Um, but he would document all of these different things, like you know, if you wanted someone to love you, you tie a red string around a tree and you you dangle across on the north facing side that's all using the technology of the time to affect a magical system that uh can get you things that you want and advance your community keep you from getting sick you know keep the big uh you know sort of coal mining companies from completely stepping on your community's neck etc cetera, etc cetera. and i've been abundantly curious and it's something that i've been attempting to do in my uh, my black gum series of novels to, to think about what a, what a modern down home conjure man witchcraft would look like with modern technology, you know, like how, how would we use these kind of tools in a homespun way to, to do exactly what these conjure people were, were doing in Appalachia in the 20th century. So that's for, for me, and you can tell me if I'm off base, but that's that's how I see the the pirate radio aspect of this thing uh, fitting in. Basically, it's more than just the curiosity. Oh yeah, no, it's def no. I, I think that the the whole conjure world and and think of the richness of of the whole the African traditions, the African American hoodoo traditions. Think how much cooler it would be to be talking about you know a, a neo hoodooism as as Ishmael Reed once was talking about as opposed to you know what we've got now in terms of I don't know critical race theory which seems so socialized and so uh, victim based and um, just not not fun and interesting <laughs> but I, I think that that the starting uh, point that what we're saying with pirate radio is that it it does bring a cult or hoodoo or animist magic into some alignment and symbiosis with science and logic. 
And the mechanism for that is that crystal radio sense of, of psychological connection. Mm-hmm. Remember that when early in the piece, we, uh, we were talking about the Solomon Islanders, who I was very fortunate to spend some time with. And I said, you know, they could be given a massive earth-moving machine, this great piece of, of Western technology. And the very first thing they do is start dismantling it. And, you know, a lot of the neo-colonialists would go, what are you doing? You know, we've given you this, you know, really expensive gift. What's happening? And, of course, they had three real goals. They wanted to take the part, the machine, so that they understood it. They actually respected the gift and wanted to know what was involved. Mm -hmm. The second element of it is they wanted to know about replacement parts, uh, fuel, what was going to be needed to sustain this machine and to make it as cool and wonderful a gift in two years time as it was on the day it got unloaded from the freighter. And the third crucial thing, which for them all is, is one meditation. They wanted to build their own magic, their own local psychology into this piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. And imagine if we really took that attitude with stuff around us. So we start minimizing, first of all, all the stuff that we need. We say, no, look, let's get, let's limit our new technology to things that we can actually learn how to, to use and that we're pretty fluent with and that we're not just fluent with it in a completely pragmatic sense, but we have some concept of what's going on. And that if, if a child did ask us, well, how does that work? We wouldn't go, I don't know. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh God, how embarrassing. One of my nightmares as a father is, is not knowing things, you know, I, I just, I want to be able to tell Gus any, anything that he asks and have some kind of answer for him. Well, you know, I, I, I think that I understand that. I mean, I think that's a vulnerability all parents face and all teachers face. And I think all individuals face, but I encourage you to, to really break with that habit because I think the, the best answer is that you're going to go get a big butterfly net and, uh, you know, go out hunting for the answer together that you, that you may not have one, that it, it, the problem is that we have directed uh, an approach of education is that we just have the quick answer and we think we know what's going on uh, and we don't. And a very good example is that you can see with young people with vocabulary. You know, you can give them some new words to learn and they, yeah, they go do a few minutes of work and they can parrot a definition. But they haven't looked into what I call the word field. I'm big on field theories of synonyms, antonyms, heteronyms, etc., uh, connotation, denotation, history. And whereas they could look at an individual word as a link to this vast ecosystem of language, it's the beginning of a treasure hunt, you know? It, it could be this fantastic adventure that could lead them in any number of directions, as opposed to, oh, this is what it means. You know, well, can you use it in a sentence? No. Can you actually pronounce it? No. Um, you know, this is the problem with the quick answer. Can, yeah. Can you turn it inside out? Can you make associations with it? I think that, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of rap music. And 
that's one of the reasons why I've always really admired people who can do that. You know, it's not as simple as, as rhyming words. You know, the appeal of hip hop isn't just that, you know, they can rhyme cat with bat. It's that they're taking a word and when they're at their best, they can make an association between two or three of a word's various meanings with two or three of another word's other meanings and tie that all together. It's an amazing skill, especially people who can do it off the top of their head. But I really resonate with the idea of of letting go of the need to be an authority figure, right, in parenting in general, and instead taking on the role of a, of a co-explorer, right, of figuring this thing out together, of saying, I don't know, I don't know. You want to find out? That seems fun, doesn't it? I think that's the key word is fun. We Fun is an interesting word to, to look up. It has a, an interesting history. But I, I think that we, we use it and overuse it so much. We particularly overuse it with, with young people, that everything has to be fun, has to be entertaining to them. And we have a lot of, of assumptions we make about that where really it, it becomes a completely passive thing of just, you know, putting the hose in someone's head or right. jumping around and, and using some funny cartoon characters to, you know, to communicate something. And that's a terrible insult to, to kids. Uh, I mean, I think that the getting, getting dirty, getting your hands in arts and crafts, getting your, your stuff, uh, happening in garages. I had a friend, um, John, uh, who was really uh, very, very different. I mean, he, he, he clearly was a young engineer, uh, and his father uh, had all of the, the equipment and tools in the, uh, in the garage. And I, I didn't really have a lot in common with, with John at the start, but, but there was an important thing that after uh, uh, my rape at age nine, it, it, was, it was really important for me to... Uh, have somewhere to hang out, a friend in a safe spot. Mm-hmm. I would go on to uh, to start a job uh, as a vacuuming a dry cleaners, which I was really excited to do. It allowed me to, to get a bike and all sorts of things. But John and his family were, were really welcoming that way. And one of the things that we developed, and he did really mo- the, the construction, but it was good training for me, we made a rat maze, hmm. like a pretty good size rat maze. Like the maze, I'm looking at my desk now, which is rectangular, about sort of three by six, uh, four by six. And we made a good sized maze with a, a, a level of real complexity. And uh, we had some pet rats and we took it to school. And it was this kind of magical sort of thing. And there were often times when we were making these machines that didn't have any real purpose. One was I didn't have, know anything about Raymond Lull's memory wheels, which you know would have gone to inspire Giordano Bruno. But we made a kind of a memory wheel, you know. Mm-hmm. And John was handy enough to sort of do this stuff. So I'd have these ideas, and uh, he always had a big uh, uh, carpenter's pencil you know, the square pencil in his pocket, and he'd get out and he'd start sort of doing, you know, drawings and stuff. And that kind of magical, you know, capability 
Um, and that belief in it's kind of like the science and, and, and handyman version of the, the Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney idea of, of let's put on a show in show mm, business. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's make believe. It's pretend. Right. Right. So now that we have the crystal radio and the pirate radio, I'm going to take a guess here and say that these are mechanisms for channeling the ghost radio. Exactly right. I, I think that the channeling, uh, trying to triangulate the signal, trying to understand the nature of the signal, because it changes like electromagnetic signals. It doesn't, it's not always uh, the same everywhere. We don't know quite what the rules or nature or capability of it is, but we, we use these tools to at least in a make-believe sense, to empower ourselves to understand what is going on. And I have a, a I want to make this one of our hallmarks where we take very complicated things and try to use a simple but pragmatic metaphor that's robust enough and honest enough to the complexity of, of the topic that uh, nonetheless explains and, and, and gives a starting point. So do you want to hear me lay out something pretty simple? Hit me with it. Okay. I wrote down the sentence, it's hard to see very far downstream when there's a bend in the river, which there often is. I've done a lot of rafting and kayaking. I've been up against that problem. That's a very physical, concrete metaphor for me, but I think people can understand it. Okay, supposing you're in that situation and you are not familiar with the river, what are your options? Option one, you can scoot around the corner and just hope for the best. Uh, It could be a learning experience. It could be a disaster. It's potluck. You don't know. Uh, Second option, you can proceed with extreme caution to the point that your fun and satisfaction of being on the river is, is undermined. It becomes a balancing act of how cautious you are versus how uh, risk-taking you are. But it's very likely that if you are in that situation, you probably will have adopted a third strategy. You may very well have a map in your craft. You may very well have looked at maps of different scales before departing. You could be the kind of person who has arranged to have a professional guide with you. You could have spoken to people and gotten their reports uh, about what their journey was like. You might very well have checked on the current weather and and river conditions, water flow, if it's any kind of a controlled uh, river. So you would be bringing that background to bear. Mm -hmm. And I suggest that that is a way of thinking about the complexity of culture. Because look at the levels, the types, the categories, and the media of information. We might say we're relying on culture or tapping into it. We're accessing information, gleaning data, taking advantage of past knowledge okay well Mm -hmm. all of those are very positive proactive verbs aren't they you're accessing knowledge you're taking advantage of past experience well my proposition is what if that 
process may not be as voluntary as supposed. Hmm. And what if while you're accessing this enormously complex and maybe too divergent uh, body of knowledge, experience, and, and words we haven't even pinned down yet, uh, what if it's accessing us? Hmm. You know, Nietzsche said, if you stare into the abyss, it also stares into you. And I think that we, we are being communicated with. Uh, we do do a lot of filtering out of, of the ghost radio signal. But these other two modes, uh, and you'll notice that, that pirate radio inherently gets more social and communal. That, that the crystal radio can function at the individual and family level. We talk about sort of, you know, garage-based projects. But we, we do need more help when we go out seeking more information about the ghost radio signal. And it's not going to be academics talking to academics. It's not going to be the kinds of discourse that we're used to, which are frankly, you know, fragmenting to hell in our lifetimes. Uh, it's going to be some other kind of socialized treasure hunt. Interesting. Okay. I do have questions here. So that I'm clear, it's the idea that the inner map of the mind, if we're going back to this river, right, is something that we are not creating ourselves but the 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 map itself is sort of given to us by the environment that's correct i mean we need to sort of unpack that further but that's certainly uh, very i think that's very sound in my view as a starting okay. point absolutely okay okay yeah i i think where i'm getting a bit lost is in the is in the second half of this then right so i get i get that uh, and then I kind of go off the the rails from there. So I, th if we could maybe unpack the the second bit of that a bit, because I'm I'm chewing on it right now. Okay. Um, well, to rephrase and tighten up what you just said, that within the human mind, via the mechanisms of language, mm -hmm. we inherit structures of thought. That's yeah. pretty. There's a lot of agreement on that generally. Yeah, How those right. work. Uh, but but I think that there is agreement on that. We're not certain at all how that relates to neuroanatomy and trying to do that physical brain idea. And we're already outside that in that Rupert Sheldrake, Jungian kind of right. broadcast in idea. Even though we're quite acknowledging that we're, we're, we're not understanding that exactly. But the second part of what's going on is that the the... And this is a problem in information science and communications is we often have people talking about transmission and not reception and then reception and we don't look at the transmission angle. And it's really one dynamic mm -hmm. and, okay. and language only makes sense that way. Uh, I mean, you, you really need people to understand a language. We can't have a language all our own. We can have interesting styles of diction and syntax, vocabulary, points of view. But in order for communication to happen, we have to have something shared, something mm -hmm. very, very fundamental. Um, so we need that base. And I don't 
like internet uh, metaphors, I think the whole computer is brain uh, paradigm is something we're trying to get away from. But supposing you have an information service, for me, it's the National Geographic might that would come to mind quickly. I get updates and, and regular things from them, okay, mm-hmm. uh, that I want, that I've chosen, okay? I've selected that proactively. Well, guess what? I get some other communications from them. And because I'm on that list, I get a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. And pretty mm-hmm. soon, the inbox is filled with stuff that I go, I didn't order that. And I think that is kind of, a, of an example of what, what the ghost radio problem is, is that in order to oh, okay. meet our desire for more signal, we want more signal that's meaningful to us. Remember, we live in a build-your-own-burger world. We want signal that's meaningful to us. Well, the price paid for that is more background noise. Yes, right. What are the, what are the strategies then to, to filter that out? Okay, well, we use crystal radio and pirate radio as a way to better understand the nature of the ghost radio signal. We're, we stay on the move, psychically looking around, trying to triangulate how that signal reaches us. What are we most susceptible to? What are our, our algorithms of association? Does that help with that? It totally does. Yes, yes. Sorry, I was thinking for just a moment. But yes, that makes sense. Okay, I get what you're saying now. You're saying that there is a, through the ghost radio, basically, if you're listening to a spirit box, you're going to hear a lot of white noise, and occasionally a voice is going to come through. And sometimes that might be a ghost, and sometimes you might be picking up someone's order at McDonald's, right? Right. And so basically, you need to take that spirit box apart and understand how it works and you need to become familiarized with what a ghost sounds like versus somebody who's taking someone's order at mcdonald's in order to uh not get bogged down in this kind of sonic wash this wave of of white noise and nonsense basically and i think that what's so compelling about that thought is that that really solves one of the major, in my mind, problems of modernity in general, which is the separation of signal from noise. I think that if you can figure that out, you are in the, you know, the 0.01th percentile of, of human beings alive right now. And it's really how we get our, to go back to Jake's question from a few hours ago, I mean, that's really how we get our lives back. That's how we stop feeling like these sort of aimless ghosts you know i mean there's something out there that's trying to present you with a map but the problem is as you did with your sort of email inbox metaphor uh that (laughs) your your email address has been sold over and over and over again right and so you're gonna get flooded now and you have to have a, a an almost automatic system in place to separate wheat from chaff basically Well, that's exactly the problem. And I I think we're all confronted with this on multiple levels daily, where on one, you know, in one frame that the idea is to put in more filters, you know, to tune out certain, certain sources. If mainstream media is making you sick and you're feeling just, you know, really kind of envenomed with with bad feelings and depression, anxiety. okay, you, you don't 
check out a couple of major stations. You, you tune that out of your life. But at the same time, how do we, you know, tuning in to more, finding that sense of alertness. And I think that's why we, we originally started talking about indigenous cultures and what we can learn, because the hallmarks is, is really physical alertness in a very immediate practical sense. And then that translates into a very different kind of, of social relationship, social connection. I think you could say that our uh, time right now, and, and particularly in America, is just obsessed with the social element, uh, socioeconomic, social justice reform, social this, social that, identity politics. The assumption is that that is the only way to conduct sociality. I mean, that's that's the most amazing thing in my that I can think of. And this metaphor is so rich too, because it really is saying that the way that you are able to tune in properly, going back to the crystal radio, is to get some sort of um, get some sort of spirit of of creation, some spirit of DIY, independent thought. Uh, it brings in elements of community because there's no better way to understand what signals are important than by understanding who lives next door. Um, so I really think that for the next week or so, I'm going to sit with this and I encourage listeners to do the same because I'm getting pulled in like eight different directions here. I'm having trouble separating uh, it into a, a clear signal because I really do think that that, uh, that unlocked it for me. And I really do think that the the the, the CPG metaphor as a shorthand, uh, it's got legs, man. This this thing has this is good stuff. I think so, and I'm really grateful for your involvement with this, David. You've you know, I mean, this is something we're building together, and something we're building with. Uh, a real network of, of people that we feel, you know, feel the spirit, feel the connection. And I think that is an exciting thing to be doing because this is not the kind of thing where, you know, you write a book, you submit it to a university press or maybe a popular commercial press, and then it might get taken up in, you know, The Guardian or The Atlantic and on and on and on. This is not that kind of a thing. We're, we're really uh, going on an expedition party uh, mm -hmm. together. And I, I think that we'll be surprised. You know, that's, that's the, the wonderful thing is the capacity for surprise to actually enjoy that. Um, I mean, that's where everything comes from. In uncertainty lies all hope, you know, mm. you, you got to keep open and, and flexible and listening around. And we're going to try to find uh, some real handles and some specifics about how to give Ghost Radio more uh, backbone, more uh, presence, more manifestation. Because mm -hmm. as, as we said at the start, you know, we, we're heavily influenced by Jung's idea of the collective unconscious and, and Rupert Sheldrake's ideas about... Uh, morphogenetic fields, which are really worth looking at. I, I really recommend his book, The Presence of the Past. I think that's his uh, best statement of that idea. 
And he draws very openly on, on Jung and Henri Bergson. Uh, these ideas are not coming out of, of nowhere, right. and no one is saying that uh, the originality is, is not the point here. We're, we're, we're really searching for practical truths, magical healing at a, at a time of psychic distress, uh, and, and to work out something together that makes us feel like we want to take on more interesting questions. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes me think, if you if you think about it in terms of maps and territory, what we're suggesting is a, a protocol for living in territories, but also talking with maps, right? Well said. I, I, th I think that this is uh, one of the more exciting ideas that uh, I've heard in recent memory. I'm glad it's on our podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about it instead of just me having to listen to it. We encourage, though, our uh, our Patreon subscribers, please do write us in uh, about this idea. Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts about it. I think um, that's going to do it for the extra hour. Chris, do you want to uh, maybe put down a little uh, trail marker here? Uh, maybe let people know where we're going to go next week. Um, talk to the people. Okay. Yeah, I think that's certainly fair. And, and we want those trail markers for ourselves. Uh, one thing we might pick up on, uh, which ties in with um, the textbook I've just finished, is, is the idea of characters. We think of them in terms of, of literature, but they're, they're very broad. And the idea of, of a character and an imaginary friend, uh, because we're kind of defining the, the ghost radio in terms of uh, a, a phantom network, in a sense, or a network that um, is a spirit network. So we, we want to look at other kinds of, of psychic entities. We've, we've spoken about, you know, things like Bigfoot and the whole UFO mythology. I think we want to look more at uh, the idea of ghosts, spirit guides, angels, perhaps. Why have some of these forms repeated throughout uh, the, the folklore and cultures around the world. There must be something that they are trying to tell us. Mm. Excellent. Oh, I know I have a few ghost stories of my own to tell next week then. So, Chris, thanks so much again. This is always a blast. Thanks, everybody, for subscribing, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks, David, and thanks, everyone. We really appreciate the participation and community. <laughs>